Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband, Rick, travel throughout the land in their travel trailer, which they have nicknamed Bessie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews. Hi, this is Alara. Welcome back to our podcast. I'm just going to start out by admitting that I'm a bit of a nerd or a geek or whatever you might now call someone who gets a kick out of interesting factoids that you might find at the bottom of page 487 of something written on paper. Books on paper for the most part. I know that some of those things aren't necessarily popular to everyone these days, but there you are. I'm unabashedly a bookworm. It can lead to all kinds of trouble in new and used bookstores. I could fly across country a few times for what I spent the first time I ever walked into Powell's in Portland. For all of you who don't know what that is, I highly recommend you follow the links we put into our intro to look. Or don't, if you have self-control issues and you're into literary indulgences too. We plan trips to Oregon just for that little dive into the literary nirvana. For Rick's part, he's a film nut. He can spout trivia all day long about all kinds of things in the multimedia universe. Old and new movies, TV series, audio series, and everything in between. All of that led to our chosen direction here at Backyard Green Films. And since Rick and I are both into a bit of history and art and agriculture and nature and music and travel and, well, practically anything interesting to be honest, you can see how we get engrossed easily in the stories of life, whether they be on the pages or on a screen. But quite often, our preferences for books and movies, history and agriculture, nature and travel and the like, well, they meet in the middle. And today's podcast content is one of those combinations that came together to create something glorious. It's a story by Larry McMurtry, inspired by history and brought to life. It was then made into a television series that was nominated for 18 Emmy Awards, and it won six. According to IMDb, McMurtry originally wrote it in 1971 as a movie script intended for John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda. But John Wayne turned it down, so it got shelved for 10 years in what they call development hell. After that, McMurtry bought it back and then wrote the book on which the miniseries was based. Suzanne DePasse, pardon my pronunciation if that one's wrong, bought the rights for $50,000 with the intent to do a miniseries, but, quote, every major network in America turned her down, unquote. Then the book won the 1986 Pulitzer Prize for fiction, and studios perked up after that. Even though this miniseries was on TV, which was considered less prestigious than Movie Land at that time, some people call Lonesome Dove the best Western ever made. We've talked about it a lot in the last few podcasts, both in book and visual form. It's an epic story of two retired Texas rangers that take a herd of longhorn cattle out of the Texas-Mexico border region in the late 1800s and bring the still wild beasts over some truly rough conditions on the trail into the northern part of Montana. The book is fictional, but based on two real-life men, 
Oliver Loving, and Charles Goodnight. On our podcast, we reference literature and film a lot, and we obviously love both. So we've decided to do something a little bit different from time to time. We're going to be reviewing or reading excerpts from books that might appeal to our listenership, in the hopes that they might be inspired too. These might be public domain books, or sometimes maybe not, but they're always ones you can find if they sound like they might be interesting to you. Hopefully, you'll enjoy the snippets we bring to you, and even more hopefully, you might take the time to check out the books for yourself. This week, the excerpt from the book I'd like to read is particularly poignant for me, especially so after our recent trip to Texas. The book is a lovely one, and I found this gem in the Fort Griffin Visitor Center. You might remember last week's podcast interview with Will Craddock, the herd manager of the official state of Texas Longhorn Herd. The book is published by the University of Texas Press, and it's called The Trail Drivers of Texas. It's also known as the Cattle Drive Bible by some, and it's just about as thick. It might be as thick as the Bible, two inches, no joke, but it's really easy to read. It's an assortment of recollections from members of the Old Time Trail Drivers Association, as in the people who actually made the actual drives and were still alive in 1924 to tell the tales. The book was first put together in 1924 by George W. Saunders and then published in 1925 by Lamar and Barton, agents. The University of Texas Press has published it again and updated it with a new introduction. I highly recommend it for any of you who want a feel for life on the non-fictional Western Trail in the words of the people who actually lived it. I have a spoiler alert, though, before you listen to the passages we're going to bring you today. This is where Larry McMurtry's fictional book, the TV miniseries, and the real-life story come together. So, if you have not read Larry McMurtry's book yet, or seen Lonesome Dove, this is your warning that you will now find out what happened at the end. So stop listening now, or be spoiled. From the sound of things, both the book and the TV show were pretty close to the real-life actuality of Goodnight and Loving, and it's amazingly moving for anyone who's not emotionally null and void. The end of this epic tale is not for wussies. So here you are, the real-life history and the real-life words of the men who inspired the epic Lonesome Dove. I've excerpted the beginning from the words of Charles Goodnight himself, Call, played by Tommy Lee Jones to you lonesome devers. The details on Loving's End is from the words of W.J. Wilson, known in the fictional account as P.I., or P., played by Timothy Scott. Charles Goodnight's description of the death of Oliver Loving didn't include the actual end. Maybe it was too painful to imagine. But I guess this is the perfect spot for the famous words of Gus himself, played by Robert Duvall. It ain't dying I'm talking about. It's living. From the Trail Drivers of Texas, here is Charles Goodnight. Charles Goodnight in Goodnight, Texas, on The Killing of Oliver Loving. Oliver Loving Sr. is undoubtedly the first man who ever trailed cattle from Texas. 
His earliest effort was in 1858, when he took a herd across the frontier of the Indian Nation, or No Man's Land, through eastern Kansas and northwestern Missouri into Illinois. His second attempt was in 1859. He left the frontier on the upper Brazos and took a northwest course until he struck the Arkansas River, somewhere about the mouth of the Walnut, and followed it to just about Pueblo, where he wintered. In 1866, he joined me on the upper Brazos. With a large herd, we struck southwest until we reached the Pecos River, which we followed up to Mexico and thence to Denver, the herd being closed out to various posts and Indian reservations. In 1867, we started another herd west of the same trail and struck the Pecos the latter part of June. After we had gone up this river about 100 miles, it was decided that Mr. Loving should go ahead on horseback in order to reach New Mexico and Colorado, in time to bid on the contracts which were to be let in July, to use the cattle we then had on trail, for we knew that there were no other cattle in the West to take their place. Loving was a man of religious instincts and one of the coolest and bravest men I have ever known, but devoid of caution. Since the journey was to be made with a one-man escort, I selected Bill Wilson, the clearest-headed man in the outfit, as his companion. Knowing the dangers of traveling through an Indian-infested country, I endeavored to impress on these men the fact that only by traveling by night could they hope to make the trip in safety. The first two nights after the journey was begun, they followed my instructions. But Loving, who detested night riding, persuaded Wilson that I had been overcautious, and one fine morning they changed their tactics and proceeded by daylight. Nothing happened until two o'clock that afternoon, when Wilson, who had been keeping a lookout, sighted the Comanches headed toward them from the southwest. Apparently they were five or six hundred strong. The men left the trail and made for the Pecos River, which was about four miles to the northwest, and was the nearest place they could hope to find shelter. They were then on the plain which lies between the Pecos and River Sul, or Blue River. 150 feet from the bank of the Pecos, this bank drops abruptly some 100 feet. The men scrambled down this bluff and dismounted. They hitched their horses, which the Indians captured at once, and crossed the river where they hid themselves among the sand dunes and breaks of the river. Meantime, the Indians were hot on their tracks. Some of them halted on the bluff and others crossed the river and surrounded the men. A break of carca, or Spanish cane, which grew in the bend of the river a short distance from the dunes, was soon filled with them. Since this cane was from five to six feet tall, these Indians were easily concealed from view of the men. They dared not advance on the men as they knew them to be armed. The Indian on the bluff, speaking in Spanish, begged the men to come out for a consultation. Wilson instructed Loving to watch the rear so they could not shoot him in the back, and he stepped out to see what he could do with them. Loving attempted to guard the rear and was fired on from the cane. He sustained a broken arm and a bad wound in the side. The men then retreated to the shelter of the riverbank and had much to do to keep the Indians off. Toward dawn of the next day, Loving, deciding that he was going to die from the wound in his side, begged Wilson to leave him and to go to me, so that if I made the trip home, his family would know what had become of him. He had no desire to die and leave them in ignorance of his fate. 
He wished his family to know that rather than be captured and tortured by the Indians, he would kill himself. But in case he survived and was able to stand them off, we would find him two miles down the river. He gave him his Henry rifle, which had metallic or waterproof cartridges, since in swimming the river any other kind would be useless. Wilson turned over to loving all of his pistols, five, and his six-shooting rifle, and taking the Henry rifle, departed. How he expected to cross the river with the gun, I have never comprehended, for Wilson was a one-armed man. But it shows what lengths a person will attempt in extreme emergencies. It happened that some 100 feet from their place of concealment down the river, there was a shoal, the only one I know of within 100 miles of the place. On this shoal, an Indian sentinel on horseback was on guard, and Wilson knew this. The water was about four feet deep. When Wilson decided to start, he divested himself of clothing except underwear and hat. He hid his trousers in one place, his boots in another, and his knife in another all under water. Then taking his gun, he attempted to cross the river. This he found to be impossible, so he floated downstream, about 75 feet, where he struck bottom. He struck down the muzzle of the gun in the sand until the breach came under water, and then floated noiselessly down the river. Though the Indians were all around him, he fearlessly began his getaway. He climbed up a bank and crawled out through a cane break which fringed the bank and started out to find me, barefooted and over ground that was covered with prickly pear, mesquite, and other thorny plants. Of course, he was obliged to travel by night at first, but fearing starvation, used the day some when he was out of sight of the Indians. Now Loving and Wilson had ridden ahead of the herd for two nights and the greater part of one day. And since the herd had lain over one day, the gap between us must have been something like 100 miles. The Pecos River passes down a country that might be termed a plain, and from one to 200 miles there is not a tributary or break of any kind to mark its course, until it reaches the mouth of the Concho, which comes up from the west, where the foothills begin to jut in toward the river. Our trail passed just around one of these hills, in the first of these hills, there is a cave, which Wilson had located on a prior trip. This cave extended back into the hill some 15 or 20 feet, and in this cave, Wilson took refuge from the scorching sun to rest. Then he came out of the cave and looked for the herd and saw it coming up the valley. His brother, who was pointing the herd with me, and I saw him at the same time. At sight, both of us thought it was an Indian, as we didn't suppose that any white man could be in that part of the country. I ordered Wilson to shape the herd for a fight, and I rode toward the man to reconnoiter, believing the Indians to be hidden behind the hills and planning to surprise us. I left the trail and jogged toward the hills as though I did not suspect anything. I figured I could run to the top of the hill to look things over before they would have time to cut me off from the herd. When I came within a quarter of a mile of the cave, Wilson gave me the frontier sign to come to him. He was between me and the declining sun, and since his underwear was saturated with red sediment from the river, he made a queer-looking object. But even when some distance away, I recognized him. How I did it, under his changed appearance, I do not know. When I reached him, I asked him many questions, too many in fact, 
For he was so broken and starved and shocked by knowing he was saved, I could get nothing satisfactory from him. I put him on the horse and took him to the herd at once. We immediately wrapped his feet in wet blankets. They were swollen all out of reason, and how he could walk on them is more than I can comprehend. Since he had starved for three days and nights, I could give him nothing but gruel. After he had rested and gotten himself together, I said, Now tell me about this matter. I think Mr. Loving has died from his wounds. He sent me to deliver a message to you. It was to the effect that he had received a mortal wound, but before he would allow the Indians to take him and torture him, he would kill himself. But in case he lived, he would go two miles down the river from where we were, and there we would find him. Now tell me where I may find this place, I said. Then he proceeded to relate the story I have just given, of how they left the Rio Sul, or Blue River, cutting across to the Pecos, how the Indians discovered them, and how they sought shelter from them by hiding in the sand dunes on the Pecos banks, how Loving was shot and begged Wilson to save himself, and to tell his, Loving's, family of his end, how Wilson took the Henry rifle and attempted to swim, but gave it up, as the splashing he made would attract the Indian sentinel stationed on the shoal. Then Wilson instructed me how to find his things. He told me to go down where the bank is perpendicular and the water appeared to be swimming, but was not. Your legs will strike the rifle, he said. I searched for his things as he directed and found them every one, even to the pocket knife. His remarkable coolness in deliberately hiding these things, when the loss of a moment might mean his life, is to me the most wonderful occurrence I have ever known, and I have experienced many unusual phases of frontier life. This is as I get it from memory, and I think I am correct, for though it all happened fifty years ago, it is printed indelibly in my mind. This is the end of W.J. Wilson's narrative. Charles Goodnight took a party of about fourteen men and pulled out to see about Mr. Loving. After riding about twenty-four hours, they came to the spot where I had left him, but he was not there. They supposed the Indians had killed him and thrown his body into the river. They found the gun I had concealed in the water and came back to camp. About two weeks after this, we met a party coming from Fort Sumner, and they told us Loving was at Fort Sumner. The bullet which had penetrated his side did not prove fatal, and the next night, after I had left him, he got into the river and drifted by the Indians as I had done, crawled out and lay in the weeds all the next day. The following night he made his way to the road, where it struck the river, hoping to find somebody traveling that way. He remained there for five days, being without anything to eat for seven days. Finally, some Mexicans came along and hired them to take him to Fort Sumner, and I believe he would have fully recovered if the doctor at that point had been a competent surgeon. But that doctor had never amputated any limbs, and did not want to undertake such work. When we heard Mr. Loving was at Fort Sumner, Mr. Goodnight and I hastened there. As soon as we beheld his condition, we realized the arm would have to be amputated. The doctor was trying to cure it without cutting it off. Goodnight started a man to Santa Fe after a surgeon, but before he could get back, mortification set in 
and we were satisfied something had to be done at once, and we prevailed upon the doctor to cut off the affected limb, but too late. Mortification went into his body and killed him. Thus ended the career of one of the best men I ever knew. Mr. Goodnight had the body of Mr. Loving prepared for the long journey and carried it to Weatherford, Texas, where interment was made with Masonic honors. On our Texas Longhorn trip, we met more than one person with a connection to all of the books and the miniseries we mentioned. So for all of you like me who love those ways that we all fit together some way in life, here's one for you. Will Craddock is the manager of the official state Longhorn herd at Fort Griffin. That site is smack dab on the western trail which leads from southern Texas to Ogallala. There's a trail connection to the Longhorns, of course, but there's another one. You might remember Ogallala in Lonesome Dove as the place where that idiot Elmira was headed after leaving her husband July Johnson and their son. Elmira thought she would find D. Boot, and she did, but I guess literary karma is unpleasant. She found out D. Boot was set to hang, and soon after that she found much, much less pleasant things on the plains of Nebraska. Lonnie Rodriguez was a wrangler on the miniseries Lonesome Dove, working and riding daily next to Robert Duvall, Tommy Lee Jones, and the rest of the phenomenal cast. Don Davis, past president of the Cattlemen's Texas Longhorn Registry and husband of Debbie Davis, is the great-great-grandson of Bill Blocker. I had him sign my Trail Drivers of a Texas Bible on page 504 next to that man's name. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going. And please ask your friends to join us. Please also feel free to post any comments or questions to our social media sites. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Backyard Green Films. Thanks again for listening. We want to thank you all for listening this week. We'd also like to send out a big thanks to the Cattlemen's Texas Longhorn Registry and also to Fort Griffin State Historical Site in Albany, Texas. Please join us next week for another adventure. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor, Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions, all rights reserved, copyright 2021.